The scripture reading for today is uh, from Isaiah 28:16, And then we'll be reading from Matthew 21, 41, and then from Romans 1, 16, 17. This is Isaiah. Listen to the word of the, of the Lord. <clears throat> this is what the sovereign Lord says. Behold, I lay in Zion a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts will never be dismayed. Matthew 21, 41. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to the other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at the harvest time. And so Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and the Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. He who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. But he on whom it falls will be crushed. Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17. Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, for the Jew first and then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is faith from first to last, just as it is, it is written, the righteous will live by faith. May God add the blessing to the reading of his word. Let me go back to that, that thought as the kids leave for junior church. I'm laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly stone, a precious stone, a foundational stone, firmly placed. And there is no disturbance if you follow that stone. And as Christ would go into us, uh, he would be inviting us to understand Clearly understand that's the message he wants you to understand, that he is the place of security, of strength. So don't misunderstand that message for us. But it's easy to misunderstand the message. I think about a, a, this guy who was <clears throat> driving down the road and he saw this sign, caution, children at play. And he slowed down the car and he thought, oh, well, just a minute, I'm not afraid of kids at play. A teenager who had four or three other kids, friends in the, in the car with him, saw this sign. It says, 35 miles per hour, speed zone ahead. And he thought, 35 miles ahead. Um, so he sped up. Sorry, that was a bad one. 
35 miles ahead. One, two. Anyway, we're trying to get ahead of this thing, and we don't want to misunderstand the message of Galatians. <laughs> so that was bad. And so as we think of as we think about this, what God is doing among us, I, I mentioned before that the questions that we have about seeing the gospel clear, clearly, that foundation stone, that your heart really is set free, is what we want you to do. And if you don't have the sense of, of God being present and working in your life, there's something going on that you need the church to come along and minister to you. Well, the Spirit of God wants you to have these things because you are a child of the King. So we're going to listen to one as we've been doing so as we go into Paul and understanding that Paul has really been the master teacher for us in this in this section as he is the apostle of the heart set free. And as he's addressing the, the Galatian believers, he, he sees what's happening. He's like, this is not supposed to be because they've left their foundation. And now they're returning to Egypt, as it were. They, they are retreating from the very blessings that God wants them to have. And so in one sense, Paul is is dealing with something that we are dealing with today. It's people who are distorting the gospel. And so we've been in that with uh, in Galatians 1. And so what I want to do today is to take a moment to, to share with you some ideas, some perspectives that I hope you are grounded in, that you have this foundational understanding that Paul did that will help you address the distortions and the questions and the challenges that you meet as Paul met with those who were religious and would would have the same kind of challenges for saying to the Gentiles, you need to do this. We are in the same challenge, but with a different set of questions. We're dealing with the non-religious, the secular, those who don't want anything to do with that system, but the questions are, similarly going to deal with this folk believers and non-believers who address how you can share with believers and non-believers who are in a distorted mode. And so that's what we're going to look at today. The church, as Mark Dever said, the church arises only from the gospel. And as clear as that is, uh, as it should be, uh, a lot of times you don't see the gospel coming out of the churches and you have a distorted message and therefore a distorted church usually coincides with a distorted gospel something has gone wrong in the evangelical church in america when you begin to see that the next generation is going to inherit a cracked foundation because you already begin to see this in the way people are thinking about morality they're thinking about same-sex marriage, religious liberty, the government's involvement, and you think about the sanctity of life. There are so many things that are going on that it's kind of hard to get your hands around it to address it. But I wanted to share with you a story where you fit in, and you'll, you'll follow in this line as you have a part to play, a significant part to play in what takes place one great on the kids. And so to share with this, uh, this metaphor, I found this really neat little thing I want to share with you. This is called the Midmerloche pipe organ. Anybody know about this? This is the largest pipe organ in the world. It's 33,112 pipes. 
It's an amazing instrument. It's huge. And as you get into this, you think about uh, how they, they have all these keyboards. And as you get into it, I want to, to take you behind the scenes to look at when that music comes out of that instrument. It is magnificent. There are eight rooms that house the pipes. Eight rooms and so in, the, in the hallway. So as you listen to this, uh, I'm asked Ryan to share this little brief little uh, video about the relay room. And this is the relay, the connections that when the guy plays, this is what's happening behind the scenes. And you wouldn't see this unless you have a chance. I hope this comes out. You can see it. Okay. Let's look at this. These are the relay switches. Interesting. That's one of eight, and the relay switches, and they're connected to the the stops, and the stops are the valves that open the open and close, and so the wind comes through. And that that idea is that by themselves they're nothing, but when the power comes through that, each individual piece opens up and contributes to the whole music that goes on. Likewise, Paul would say lifeless things, either the flute or the harp and producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the tones, how will it be known what is played? Or on the flute or on the harp. But if the, if, for if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? And Susan knows, I know, Ryan knows that if you play musical instrument, if you make mistakes, you, you, you're, you're sensitive. That's not the way it's supposed to go. But when there's a distortion, when there's something going on in the, in the performance, we always try to rehearse and practice to get a better sound. Well, these distortions, we, we're very familiar with, and so was Paul. 
And so here's what I want to share with you, that there are three things that Paul had very clear in his understanding. And I don't know, I want you to know that these three things are things for you to think about so they're clear in your understanding so that when you open your pipes, you produce a clear sound distinctly that's in harmony with the Spirit of God. And here's, this is a summary for me. I think there are three things that Paul really clearly understood that I hope we do grow into. And this is the the technical words that you're going to come away with some theological education today. So you'll know about these three words. One is Christology. I mentioned it last week about who he is. Jesus would always say to the multitudes, who do you say that I am? Christology is understanding in history what people think about Christ. And so it's really clear to keep that sense word that you may not all of our discussions when we're talking about with people. But second is this word that you may not know is the eschaton or the eschatology. And eschatology is about what he's doing in time, in history, in space, in the universe, but that it's going to have to do specifically um, with the will of God, and and that's the accomplishing of the redemption, which is called the salvation story, which is soteriology. It's it's the it's the gospel that's put on you that's calling you into a relationship where you answer the question, well, what am I to do? If I call you Lord and I'm following you, then I'm moving in a different way of thinking. These are the three things that Paul, I think, could uh, summarize as, as you think about with Paul these things, who he is, what he's doing, what I'm to do. Christology, again, we mentioned in our passage in Isaiah that I am laying in Zion a stone. This is the place, a tested stone, the foundation, a costly cornerstone. And if you believe in it, you won't be disturbed. This is the security that you'll be loved with a love that you didn't earn and therefore can never lose. And God put in this earth, in one place, in Jerusalem, on the Golgotha, that place of salvation, a tested stone. Eschatology is the climax of history, where it's going. It's the study of the end times. Uh, Esch comes from out, hatos, final end, the teleos. It's where God is going and where he's looking at what that stone in Zion is going to affect is the climax at the end, and it has to do with the death, the judgment, heaven or hell, it's your destiny, where you're going to find the world ending up in the last chapter. And there's this big word, soteriology. It's when you understand how Christ died for the ungodly. This is, this is the mystery of the kingdom to understand in salvation, come in to do work for us in, in salvation, which we couldn't do for ourselves. Now, as you get into the Old Testament, again, this, this is the Old Testament book that Paul would anchor his thinking in, and he would go back 
in the days in Arabia, and as he's thinking about processing all of this change that he's going through, he would go back to Job, the oldest book, and he would understand where Job would see the climax of history. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end, he will stand on earth. The Messiah was coming. Job had a glimpse of that. We don't talk about that much in Job, but there it was. And after my skin has been destroyed, death, yet in my flesh I will see God. And, and, Paul, and Job knew that God was doing this among the nations. And so Job had a big picture. Job knew it. He makes the nations rise and then fall. He builds up some nations and abandons others. Job knew that. Abraham, um, or Moses knew this back in Genesis 24, yet his bow remained unmoved and his arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd called the stone of Israel. Isaiah knew it. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. And it will be exalted above the hills. And all the nations will stream to that mountain. And many people will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, to the stone of Israel. And he will teach us his way so that we may walk in his paths, for the law will go forth from Zion. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Isaiah knew it. Daniel knew it. You know the story from the Vacation Bible School. We talk about Daniel a lot in interpreting the dreams to Nebuchadnezzar. And this is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold pieces. The great God has shown the king, said Daniel, what will take place in the future. The dream is true. And its interpretation is trustworthy. Remember the worship in Daniel. Again, like the Galatians, there were idols that they worshipped. And this was an idol that uh, Nebuchadnezzar had built. And they put it in a place where people would come and worship Nebuchadnezzar, except Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, Abednego would go and say, we're not going to worship that idol. And so... This represents the, the history of the nations as you go through. The gold was the Babylonian Empire, said Daniel. And uh, as you go down to the second part of that statue, the Medes and the Persians, the silver, the inferior, wasn't as good as the Babylonian reign. But you come to the Greek age where the bronze belly, and you see that part of the statue that somehow God gave that vision to Nebuchadnezzar to say, that the history of the nations are going to rise and fall, as did the Roman Empire. You see the dates there, the iron. But you get to this last part of, of this mixture of the feet of iron and clay. Iron uh, and clay, they don't mix. And so it's the time of, undivi of, of division coming in. There's a, no unity. This doesn't work. This doesn't fit. And therefore, out of that, a rock was cut not by human hands. And the rock came and destroyed the pagan idol. That's what was happening in Galatians. And that's what I said, where the gospel goes, 
the false worship of false idols is going to be destroyed, as it was in Daniel. And when that rock came down and hit that statue, Nebuchadnezzar understood this isn't a human political government uh, thing. This is God doing his work. And so Daniel would say, the wind's going to sweep all of this away. Daniel understood that. Jesus understood that. And so Jesus would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the authority. And all authority has been given to me as the rock of Israel is going to shatter all those things. And he says, I want you to go to all the nations. And where you go, you're going to shatter those pagan false hoods as well. But you're going to baptize them, making disciples in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But I want you to follow me. And I want you to teach them to follow me. So this stone laid in Zion, if you believe in it, you won't be disturbed. Zechariah, back to the Old Testament, Zechariah described this stone this way. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua, which is the Hebrew word for Jesus? There are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty. And I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. Zechariah knew that those those seven eyes and that one stone, the, the all-seeing, the comprehensive, the idea that the whole picture was about removing the sin in one day. This is the end of times. This is the eschaton. This is what Paul knew. And John knew, as he wrote in Revelation, I saw between the throne the four with the four living creatures and the elders, I saw before a lamb standing as if slain, standing before the people and the throne was this lamb, having seven horns, having seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Again, the horns, the pronouncements, the announcements, the proclamation, this is the one the seven eyes, comprehensive, I see everything. And for all those who see it, the seven spirits who are sent out into all the earth, there's an old rabbi named Joseph Kimchi. Uh, he says these are the seven men of the Old Testament, Joshua, Ezra, Zerubbabel, Nehemiah, and three minor prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Behold, I will engrave the engraving thereof, says the Lord of hosts. And this is the Old Testament view. This is the world uh, that Paul would, would drink deeply of when he would come to understand that this stone, this one would bring salvation. This one would inscribe on the very hands of the Messiah the salvation, forgiveness. Therefore, Understanding who this Christ is, that this one would come, unlike other high priests, he does not need to offer him sacrifices day after day, as the temple system would have. He wouldn't offer him for his own sins, but he would offer himself for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once. 
for all when he offered himself. Hebrews 9, uh, that's Hebrews 7.27. Hebrews 9.26 again picks up, otherwise Christ would have to have suffered repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away the sin by the sacrifice of himself. So Christ, 9.28, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time not to deal with the sin, not to deal with the sin, but to save those who are waiting. That's you and me who are waiting for him. So to you who believe, to you who believe, this stone is precious. This is the one that God laid in Zion for you and for me. Say, and therefore, this idea of a rock, your faith, that Christ would say, if you believe in me, you won't be disturbed. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Again, stability, strength. Two truths are here. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. But he who believes in it not will be disturbed. And therefore, you have this whole world being divided by those who believe and those who don't believe. And so you walk with people who are in a disturbed state, a distorted state, people who don't have an understanding that gives them the strength. And if you begin to tell about this stone, this precious stone, you may find a a variety of reactions, and one of those reactions is hatred. How do you deal with people who really challenge you? No one is more hated than he who speaks the truth. Plato said that. And Jesus says, because I tell you the truth, you're going to kill me? And yet, understand something. That when God wants to speak to the world, and he sends out those seven spirits, and he brings out the gospel in the church, there was a point in time in the ministry of Jesus, a very significant thing that I want you to hear as you interact with people who are unbelievers, that Jesus understood, and Paul would understand from Jesus and and the others, that not everyone is going to be a believer, even in the family of Christ. We don't hear everyone coming as a follower of Christ. And there came a point in time, halfway in the book of of Matthew, Matthew 13. In Matthew 12, Jesus was doing the ministry, healing, casting out demons, there are a lot of things that the disciples were enjoying. And so don't rejoice that you see the Satan fall from heaven, but rejoice that your name is written in the book of life. At that point, Jesus was challenged by the Pharisees, said, how does he do these things? And the Pharisees said, he does these things by casting out, called Jesus demonic. And because they rejected the ministry of Christ, Something takes place right there in Matthew 13 that you've got to see this. There's a turning point 
a hinge, a pivoting in the ministry of Jesus that he would never talk, never talk to the Pharisees and explain to them what the meaning of the gospel was. And he begins to teach in parables. And this is the parable of the soils. As you interact with people who are unbelievers who reject Christ, you think about what Jesus wants you to understand. This is the first of the mystery parables. Not everybody's going to get it. And you need to understand that what Jesus said to the disciples, you need to have that same sensitivity to you as you talk with people. And so Jesus would say, that day Jesus went out by the house and he was sitting by the sea. And a large amount of people came and stood on the beach listening to Christ. And the crowd was standing and he spoke many things, saying to them, and you know this, behold, the sower went out to sea. So, and as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road and the birds came and ate it up. Others fell where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched because they had no root, and they withered away. Then there were those who heard the word, but the seed fell on the thorns. And because the seed couldn't grow in the thorns, the thorns choked them out, not horns. Thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundred, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Jesus knew that not everybody would accept him. Jesus knew that the stone that was laid was for those who would believe, but the stone that was laid would also be the stone that would crush those who wouldn't believe. And therefore, there was a clear understanding in Jesus' mind that the kingdom of God is going to invade this world and rescue those who had faith in Christ, and those who didn't would have a different destiny awaiting them. So the disciples said, well, why do you speak to them in parables? Hear the privilege. Jesus didn't talk about them so much, but he talked to the disciples. To you it has been given, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it has not been granted. Why? They rejected Christ. He went to his own, and they didn't want Christ. They said, get out of here. We'd rather have the pigs here than the healing. And we don't want the kingdom. We just, we, leave us alone, Jesus. And they did. And Jesus said, this is what Isaiah was talking about. You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. You say something, nothing. With the ears, they scarce, scarcely, scarcely hear. And they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return. And I would hear them, but no, not these folks. Dull, barely hearing. They don't get it. And as a result, Jesus would say, what you see in the lives of people are withered people, hurried people, preoccupied people, burdened people, crowded out people. They just don't get the word of God. 
And that's what Paul did get and was trying to say clearly, you don't know who Christ is. You don't know what the end of the world's going to be. You don't know what he came to do in saving you from this world to rescue you. And therefore, the point for us is to understand that if you get involved in an argument with these people, you'll get into arguments. And my word to you is don't get into arguments. The natural man will not understand the supernatural. And therefore, there's a way you approach people in the soil parable to say, to ask questions, to engage them so that they're not distorted, but they're delivered if the Spirit of God is at work. If that clear note is going to be heard and seen so that that rock becomes their focus, their strength, then it means that this person who's an unbeliever has to go through a change, a regeneration, not transformation of the heart, persuasion of the argument. It's the transformation of the heart. Because a lot of people have the right answers, but they have the wrong heart. And therefore, don't be fooled and don't be distorted and don't be <clears throat> discouraged because only the Spirit of God can do that which you can't do. He can touch your friend. He can touch your family member. But you can't. So it's not your job to save people. It's not your job to convince people that this is true. This is not your story. Therefore, you don't have to be insecure or ashamed. As Paul would say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, but I need to be very clear in the gospel. As you make that sound, uh, uh, then people will hear, I understand. The church, clear-minded and grounded in the gospel, knows that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And therefore, you have a song to sing. You have something that you can say to those who are disappointed, to those who are disturbed. But as you take the gospel to people, let me just share a couple of things that you need to hear uh, that we do in the prison ministry in Kairos is you listen, listen, love, love. You're not in, in a warfare with anyone. You're there to love and listen. And, and I would say, you've heard me say that you have three ears. Three ears? Yeah. One, you listen to what the person is saying. Two, you're listening to what you're thinking, feeling in response to this. But there's a third ear. You're listening to what the Spirit of God wants you to say to this person. And that person will hear uh, that sound coming from you as you hear God giving you the clear note to say, but you've got to listen. So listen with three ears. But you want to speak one message. And that message is simple. In four words, you can say it easily. God died for you. If you only get four words out, those are the four words. God died for you. God has a gift for you. And how do you respond to that? So as you engage people, as you hear people who don't have you can say things like about what's happening. They're stuck in the moment. You can say things like, can I share with you why I became a Christian? And you ask permission. 
whenever I ask that question, I, no one's ever said, no, shut up, I don't want to hear it. No one's, they said, yeah, sure. Why did you become a Christian? They're curious. They want to know. Last night, I was on the phone talking to a friend in Newcastle, Scotty, who said, I, I got two teenage girls who thought, I don't know where they got their thinking from, but I got into an argument with them and it went nowhere about same-sex marriage, same-sex and transgender, and they were really confused. You can't believe the Bible. And he just got into an argument with them. I said, God, you didn't listen. And uh, to listen, let people struggle, but you pull people into the gospel. But you can invite, and this is what I would say, you can say, have you ever considered who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and think about your response to him? Again, who he is, what he did, and, and what do you want Christ to do for you? To enter into that kind of discussion so that people will hear clearly your pipe opening, and when the relay of the Spirit is open and the Spirit comes through you, understand that's the ministry of light going into darkness. And God's going to use you as you open up and as you share your own testimony about who Christ is, what you believe is going to happen at the end of times, and that your response is, well, I'm choosing to follow Christ. Would you come to Christ? Would you, have you ever thought about following Christ? Would you want that? And those are the questions you begin to change these distorted views. Unless God regenerates the heart, we're just flat, off-key, distorted. But when God moves, you'll hear that song. So, with that, let me remind you, you're a pipe. And there are 33,112 pipes in that organ, but the church has thousands of pipes. This pipe organ sat silent for years after a hurricane went through Atlanta and for years made no sound. And because there was an indistinct sound, nobody enjoyed the music. Open up. Let God speak and flow and sound through you. That's what Paul is doing to the Galatians. Those three things, as you get into the next section, you're going to find Paul getting to some real deep work so that you understand who Christ is, the eschatology, and how that lives out and becomes part of your freedom. And for that, we thank God for that. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you that you are the light of the world. Thank you that you are our rock and our salvation, and that the people of God do have a song to sing. Where the people hear that or understand it, Father, would you give us the wisdom when the, when the world wants to destroy the truth and take away the, the seed, give us another chance to sow the seed again and that people will come to know Christ because of us sharing the good news. Again, Father, take these words, encourage us with them and uh, strengthen us that we might be boldened to share the gospel like Paul did. Again, we praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.